0: And today I'm delighted to be with Brennan O'Donnell from Frontline Ventures.
1: Brennan, so good to be with you today.
0: Good to see you, Matt.
1: Yeah, and so uh, this isn't our first time together. We met way back in 2012 when you were leading strategy and ops at Yammer, right?
0: Yeah, we've known each other for, for a long time. It's been, it's been great. Yeah, that's one of us can say too
1: long, who knows which one, but uh, it's (laughs) great to be with you today. Um, And I'm excited because we've got a really interesting topic today. You're you're now with a venture firm that specializes and has expertise in um, crossing the chasm, as it were, and the chasm being the Atlantic, right? Um, And uh, so love to hear a little bit about uh, your role as a partner at Frontline Ventures. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, the firm itself and maybe a little bit about what you do there?
0: Sure, uh, absolutely. So Frontline uh, as a firm, obviously venture capital firm, we've been around about 10 years and our our heritage is grounded in early stage investing in Europe. So seed, -seed, pre-seed, across three different funds. We have a few hundred million euros under management, probably close to a hundred different companies at at this point in time. Um, And it's all B2B as a focus, but apart from that, really broad in terms of of the types of companies that, that we invest in. And then I co-lead our second practice, which uh, we spun up uh, about two or three years ago, um, where it's growth stage investing. And as you said, we focus on investing in US companies and we specifically help them with European expansion. Uh, and, and the genesis uh, for, for, the, for, the, for the growth fund was really based um, off of the operating experience of myself and my partner, Steven McIntyre. We worked together in the early days of Google in, in Europe for about five or six years. Um, and then I came back to the states, and you know my career through Yammer and a handful of other startups leading go to market, you know that was always the tip of the spear for European expansion. So it's been a big threat of of my career, uh, both leading go to market teams and expanding internationally. And Stephen then went and ran um, Twitter for about five or six years for Europe, Middle East, and Africa. So we both kind of had this intersection of our careers. Um, and as a result, we we you know made a lot of mistakes with European expansion. We had a lot of successes. and our peer group, who, you know, had similar roles for for some of the best companies in the world, would make some of the same mistakes again. And we we kind of realized um, that we had these amazing investors around us, some of the best investors in the world, that would help in all sorts of different ways. But European expansion wasn't one of them. It just wasn't a place where they were sort of suited or where they wanted to spend their energy. And um, and and it's a it's it's just a massive opportunity for for companies. I mean, by the time companies IPO. 30% of revenue is, is coming from Europe. So it was sort wow. of shocking to us that there wasn't a firm focused on this. Um, and so we we decided to create the fund within the frontline brand and, and make you know make the firm kind of a, a multi-stage uh, firm. And um, and that's the focus of our, of our growth fund.
1: Well, I, I think there's a statistic that's gonna shock a few people. So 30% uh, of revenue at IPO stage, so, so not insignificant. I know some people are gonna be thinking, yeah, I get it. But like, if I think back to some of the organizations that were early pioneering this you know, transatlantic experience, people or folks will be thinking about, well, hang on a second. Can't we just hire a local executive, pull them out of Oracle or Salesforce or SAP and just build it themselves? Why do founders need your expertise and broader help than doing it just like that? Going and just pulling someone out of one of these companies and off they go. Sure.
0: Well, I mean, first of all, I think, the The whole you know reason that we've founded the the fund, like I said, is born out of the fact that we've seen firsthand time and time again, the best companies make the same mistakes over and over again. And really, I think foundationally, it's because um, you know us as as Americans sort of generally underestimate the size of the opportunity of Europe. I mean, I mentioned you know the thirty percent of revenue, um, but but also kind of um, overestimate how easy it's going to be and underestimate the complexity of it, right? And, you know the companies that we're talking about. By the time you're expanding in internationally, um, it you know making mistakes isn't going to take the company down. They're not going to implode because they mess up, but they absolutely will um, you know waste capital and more importantly waste time. And so so really, European expansion is one of these places where, um, you know, the companies that we invest in and that you and I you know work with day in and day out, they innovate in so many different ways. But international expansion is, is not really a place to get terribly creative in innovation. It's really execution. And so the experience of making those the, the right decisions and, and executing sort of de-risking you know de-risking expansion is, um, is where we kind of come into play right because while the questions are similar for every single company, getting the combination of answers is is usually kind of pretty bespoke for for the companies that we work with.
1: So that's really interesting. It sort of makes you think honestly about the way we think about leadership teams, right? At the end of the day, it's about um, the first principles is asking the right questions, which is what I heard you just say, because the answers will be different, but most people don't know the questions to ask. And I think the mistake I keep seeing people make is I was kind of, I was trying to throw your softball there because I've seen so many times where they do take that established European executive and make him or her the, the regional head. Problem is, they're not an entrepreneur and they've never built it. I mean, they joined these large firms when they were established with processes, capital, resources, and people. Um, They wouldn't know the first thing about being first person on the ground and building it from the ground up. Um, And then the second mistake I see people make is without any guidance at all, taking that US transplant and thinking, dropping them in because they're gonna bring our culture to London or Ireland and make it work,
0: right? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. So we've actually, we've done the research on this, right? So um, we released a report about a year ago now where we took a look at the European expansions of close to 200 different US SaaS businesses over Mm -hmm. the last 15 years or so. We looked at all of the questions that you, you would talk about, you know, talent decisions, location decisions, timing decisions, all of this. And on the specific point about GMs, uh, within the first two years, 50% of the leaders that are hired are no longer with the company that they start. So it's one of the biggest mistakes. It's one of the biggest mistakes that the companies make over, over and over.
1: Yeah. Well, let's talk about it. So so, so, uh, folks who are listening are thinking, yeah, well, 30% of revenue sounds pretty important. What, what has to be in place for a company, a US-based company to be ready to make the leap?
0: Sure. Well, you know, timing is one of the most important decisions. And so the subset then of what are the core three or four things that, you know, we advise the CEOs that we're working with, um, you know, what are the, where, where, where do you want to be to make sure that, you know, you're, you're ready? How do you know when it's time to go? Um, The first one is kind of obvious, like your go-to-market is humming in the U.S. You know, you're certainly over product market fit and, you know, the go-to-market motion is never 100% done. You're never finished with it, but you're over that that sort of intuitive point where you've got a pretty solid sense of for every dollar you put into the company, you know what you're going to be able to get out in terms of revenue, or at least like close to that close mm-hmm. to that point. Um, if you're not there, there's you're not ready. You need to focus on kind of dialing that in first. Um, the second is your executive team. And this can include some non-obvious pieces. So it's not just, you know, do you have the right go-to-market leader? It's all of the functions, you know, do you have the the person that is capable of running a global business for their respective function from product through to HR, through to sales, marketing, et cetera, because this really is a transformational moment for the company and for the CEO. It's the first big step where you're really saying, okay, we're not just a a North American focused company, we're we're a global company. And so, you know, there's different levels of experience and talent and, and across all of the functions, making sure you kind of have those 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 key leaders in place. Um, capital, I mean, capital is not really a problem anymore for these companies. Maybe it would have, the way it would have been a few years ago, every company is very well, well, well funded. So the way I think about the capital is not so much the, the capitalization of the company, but are you prepared to spend it? Um, you know, are you prepared to invest and, and kind of over-invest again across all of the functions that you need to invest in to, to really make it successful? And then the last one is um, that it's a priority for the CEO. I mean, I think it's, it is, you, you alluded to this question a minute ago, it is sort of a classic um, mindset of going, well, I'll just hire the local GM and, you know, great, we're, we're off to the races. You know, it, it it is a period of time, let's call it kind of a roughly a 12 month period, maybe a little bit less, where um, it has to be a top priority for the company, um, which means it has to be a CEO priority, right? right? And so having that, you know, that that buy-in from from, from the founders on on down is really important for for that window of time
1: yeah yeah it's interesting um when you talk talk about this u.s centric view of the world one of the things that you, you mentioned global globally experienced leaders and if you take an example like product or product marketing in particular you know simple things around localization language uh, and laws, uh, you know, it's very nuanced. Um, and I think the barrier to execution um, is a lot higher than a lot of people think. Uh, it's not about just shoving your marketing materials into Google Translate, right? So, um, so I think you make a, a, a great point about, uh, about the profile of executive you need, um, which makes me think about the, uh, some of the folks that I see on their way there. Oftentimes, uh, US companies will put inside sales organizations in the East Coast, uh, and look to, to run a European operation out of there for quite an extended period of time. What do you think about that? Is it a stepping stone? Is it something that can be done long-term?
0: Sure, I, well, I think it depends is unfortunately kind of the answer on that one. We've seen companies do it for a period of, of time, particularly during COVID. I mean, you know, with the restrictions on, on travel, we, we saw a little, you know, some, some more companies kind of experimenting with that just because it's lower, lower risk. Um, You know, the the traditional axiom, I think, is true. The larger your customer is, the closer you need to be to them to Mm -hmm. successfully sell to them. And that's true both geographically as well as, um, you know, cultural familiarity, right? Um, And and, and so uh, we've seen it work successfully for a period of time. The... um, the more self-serve your product is, the more effective that can be certainly support, right? Like let's say you know, typically customers, so I mentioned the 30% statistic. Usually SaaS businesses today can see anywhere between 8 and 12% of revenue coming from Europe without doing anything, any focus. It's just organically that's, you know, the early adopters that we kind of consistently see. So if you if you have a percentage of your customer base that, you can see as European-based and predominantly English-speaking supporting them with like a you know sales-assisted motion or or you know customer success on the East Coast and stuff, great kind of starting points. But we kind of get back to the advice we usually give is um, as soon as you're ready with those criteria that that we mentioned earlier, uh, you, you you should go right. You should as soon as you're prepared to make the investment, you should make make the investment. I know we'll talk a little bit more about timing in a in a minute, but I can elaborate I can elaborate on that. Um, because the local market in Europe is is just, you know, seeing tremendous companies that are getting created. There's just fantastic businesses that are getting built. So, you know, you, you want to go as soon as you're as you're ready to go.
1: Yeah, it's interesting too. And when people talk about Europe, they speak about it as though it's a single entity, right? And then, you know, and the nuances about CIS or um, uh, EMEA or uh, MENA, uh, depending on what you want to look at, you know, the daiquiris and the Benelux. I mean, you know, there's so much stuff that we're not really familiar with here. And, and I think it's a real mistake to think that you can treat it as a thing um and and run it out of the us for extended periods of time um yeah what i think would be helpful um is if you gave us perhaps one example that might come to mind of a company that's done really well and what you think sort of distinguishes them and their in their uh,
0: transatlantic mission sure one one other point actually on 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 the the last question was Um, We also have this concept of success amnesia that we talk about with CEOs a lot. Again, the companies, by the time they're expanding into Europe, they're doing really, really well. And it's very easy to forget all of the hard work you had to put in to get to the point that you're at, right? Whether that was finding product market fit, whether it was A-B testing your, your marketing channels, whether it was building up your sales team and figuring out what works from an outbound and inbound, all of these things, you're all of a sudden working. And it's really easy to forget what you had to do to get there if you have your team in the East coast or in the U S you're going to have success initially, right? Your product is going to have early adopters. I guarantee people will hit their quota. You're going to, you're going to make those initial sales, but you're not necessarily going to be capturing the learnings and either validating, are these things actually working in the new market we're focused on or do we need to kind of take a different approach because you're just going to be kind of, Catching the fish that are jumping in the net, right? So, anyways, th- that was on the last the last question, but it's another kind of important piece of you know having people local is the only way you catch that. Um, in terms of companies, uh, I and mean, we've worked with so many great companies that have that have done this well. Uh, you know, well, a recent example is Lattice, a um, you know company that we're fortunate to be investors in. They officially launched in in the UK uh, in September, but actually started uh, you know started building out the presence there uh, in Q1 of of this year and. You know, it goes back, what's made them successful kind of goes back to the points, you know, we talked about are, are what's important. Number one, Jack's an amazing founder um, and ad CEO buy-in and, and prioritization, you know, right from the outset, it's, it was one of their core kind of four or five um, goals for, for 2021 is, you know, successfully expanding in, into Europe. Um, as, a, as a consequence, we also had strong executive team alignment. You know, we spent sessions with the whole team together, getting them all aligned on what the goals were going to be uh, and how to execute on that. The timing, I think, was really interesting for them. You know the the commitment to make it a priority was was decided when we were still pretty much in the thick of you know lockdowns and 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 the pandemic. Um, and I think that speaks to, you know for 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 that company and the quality of the leadership team, and sort of the strength of the business accelerating out early of, of kind of that, you know, traumatic period that we were in was, um, was something that was not an obvious decision at, at the time. You know, easily could have said, let's wait another six months. Um, but that has put them in a very, very strong position uh, in terms of, you know, the hiring they've, they've been able to, to make and how they've kind of prioritized the market. And I was just there last week meeting with Seth and the local team. I mean, since since June, so in, what, three or four months they've gone from zero to nearly 22 people in in the office there. So they're just, it's incredible growth.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we're recording this here at the end of October, 2021. And right now it's really hard to get great candidates and everyone's poaching like mad. So that's a real credit to them. Uh, And in particular being a non locally originated firm, because it's hard to get people's attention. You know, who are these people? Will it be the right culture? All that good stuff. So now that is, that is very good. So maybe, to sort of reinforce the, the, the uh, things you said are important. What are the top mistakes founders are making as they head to Europe?
0: Sure, well, the, the way I think about the mistakes is, uh, I mean, there are mistakes, but it's, but it's almost through the lens of the decisions that you make in about four different areas have a disproportionate impact on the success or failure with expanding, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the first one is timing. Um, we spoke earlier about, you know, how do you know if you're ready? Um, so not being ready is the obvious piece of it. The less obvious piece is waiting too long. Um, it's really easy to sort of say, oh, we're going to focus on the U.S. market for an extended period of time because the market's so big and, you know, we have so much to do here, and we're going to put that off a little bit. What a, what a lot of um, U.S. founders and, and 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 investors sometimes don't appreciate is the amount of venture capital that has poured into Europe has doubled in the last three years. Last quarter was the most amount of venture investment ever in Europe. The quarter before that was the most amount of venture investment ever in Europe. And we're we're sitting now at the end of kind of a, te- not the end, but like we're 10 years into a run where there's been fantastic companies that have been created in Europe across all sectors. And the talent that's developed in those companies are, are going out and starting their own businesses and they're well-funded. Um, Very well funded in a way that 10 or 15 years ago, we didn't kind of see that in Europe the way we we see it in the US kind of venture ecosystem. Um, And, you know, Americans don't, you know, have a corner on the market in terms of creating great companies with great ideas. So waiting too long is now a recipe for Seeding market to, to local competition, so that timing threading that needle is, is really really important. The decision there is really really important. Um,
1: can they just go to market to frontline and ask for a hundred million dollars and buy up all the local competition, do a roll up? Can we just do that?
0: <laughs> we we can, we can talk about that after the after the after the the podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Um, um, so let's see the, the other couple, uh, the other couple areas um, in terms of, you know, more mistakes, I mean, go to market. So you know getting your market prioritization, right? Investing the right amount, a classic example, I'll give it an easy one, but um, you know, if you put a sales team and invest in the sales team, but don't invest in the marketing team, <laughs> it's not going to be successful. Right. So making sure that, you know, you, you prioritize and, and, um, and you develop the local strategies and invest appropriately. Talent and org design. So I mentioned you know, the importance of the local hiring. The non-obvious piece here is um, the decisions you make in terms of your operating cadence and your organizational structure at headquarters, right? So an example that I love to give is, let's say you've got a product prioritization uh, process, right? And it's established and it's in place and it's driven on, on based on the ROI of what product features, you know, are going to deliver and all of a sudden you go into a few new markets um and you know if you are just making your product prioritization decisions off of the revenue you're going to see in the upcoming quarter or the upcoming year you're never going to prioritize some of the things you need to do to make those markets successful right and so rethinking your systems and rethinking your design that's a big piece of it not just not just locally and then and then the fourth um the fourth component is location so You know, even in a world where there's teams that are natively distributed, um, even if you don't have an office per se, making a decision on where you're going to headquarter your company, which, you know, is a long-term decision over 10 or 15 years is really, really important. Historically, it's usually one of three cities. Again, we've done the research on this. It's usually London, Dublin, or, or Amsterdam. There's pros and cons depending on, you know, the nature of the business. But that location decision is the fourth one.
1: I love it. Yeah, I'm going, to, I'm going to reiterate from personal experience what you said about um, investment and in marketing uh, in support of sales. Because I personally have been victim of the North American marketing organization trying to serve as APAC, for example, Asia Pacific. Right? <laughs> just you know, uh, they they do have to
0: really invest in local expertise there for sure. Yeah. Well, and it's like I mean, just you know, getting quite tactical on that example. What I've seen time and time again, you know, if you're a salesperson and you're in a local market. And, you know, all of your customer case studies are American companies, right? As opposed to local companies. I mean, there's a million different like small examples, but collectively they kind of add up to like, it's just not a localized offering that's going to be compelling to customers.
1: Yeah, 100%. And it's kind of signaling, isn't it? Because then they're wondering, themselves, well, how is my account management, customer success and support going to be if at the front end, when you're most invested in getting my dollar, You're not even paying attention so yeah i think just makes it a lot harder so let's let's talk about some fun stuff if a company wants to get funded and supported by frontline and get all this fabulous expertise what do they need to come prepared with what 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 must be a prerequisite before they come and chat to you folks
0: sure well i'll I'll set aside the the seed side so for a seed practice in europe it's kind of what you'd expect for really early stage investing things like you know the team founder problem fit with respect to the team. Do they have unique insight into the market? Is the market has does it have the potential to be very very large? You know, or is it already really large? Um, you know, traction if, if that's relevant. But to focus on um, you know the growth side uh, where I invest, um, one we look for category leaders. So we invest in B two B businesses across a range of different categories. You know, does the company is the company on the trajectory to be the leader in in their specific category? Um, over the hump of product market fit, um, you know, just as growth stage investors, we, we, you know, that's not the risk we take. We sort of take the risk of, of scaling because that's specifically where we, we de-risk is, you know, helping de-risk the challenges around scaling um, you know, with, with international expansion. Um, exceptional growth and metrics. So, you know, like usually you know, growth and, and uh, net revenue retention, you know, customer expansion or whatever the metrics are that are appropriate for the company. The so top top class, um, you know, metrics, uh, the team kind of goes without saying, both the founder and then the ability, you know, have you kind of built out a strong uh, leadership team around you? Because usually at this stage, you know, that's, you know, there's, there may be a few kind of holes on the on the executive bench, but, um, but you know, have you been able to attract really top tier talent uh, across all the different functions? And then the last one is global ambition. I mean, it seems like an obvious thing to say, but are you really prepared, you know, do you really want to build a global company, because you can build a fantastic business, venture back business and just focus on the US market right and and that can be very, very successful. Do you really want to build a global business and are you prepared to do the things that are required make the investments that are required sort of transform your company transform yourself as a leader into you know that scale of, of business.
1: Yeah, that that makes sense. It, it makes me think about just sort of being venture investable, you've got to have that really big vision and 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 you know swing for the fences as it were, uh, type type view of the world, don't you? So no that's that's an interesting piece of guidance. Uh, I, I like that. Um, now, look, as much as for myself as people are listening, I'm really interested. What's it like moving from an operating role to being an investor? How, how long have you been an investor
0: now, Brennan? uh well officially as a career about two years i mean i've, angel, I've been angel yeah. for 10 years but sure. um, okay this is but in terms so of the career years, the career, career about two years yeah yeah
1: you, you've got past the 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 honeymoon what's it like tell us tell us about that experience in terms of how you spend your time what you think about when what's your perspective on it now
0: yeah well i mean at a personal level i love it i think a lot of you know a lot of career decisions are just tied to you know what makes sense for for you in the intersection of you know what are you good at what value can you Provide, what do you like to do, those sorts of things. Um, You know, a couple observations in no particular order. One, there are not a lot of X operators in venture, at least, you know, less than you would think. I think less than sort of popular. you know, perception is. Um, and there's even a fewer number that are ex go-to-market people, typically, you know, investors that have come from operating roles are founders or founders yeah. or product people, generally speaking. Um, so that's been really interesting. And I think a nice differentiation, just when you talk to founders to be able to bring a, you know, go-to-market, um, operating perspective. Um, I think another interesting thing, again, it's kind of concept misconceptions about, um, you know, what being a venture investor is, you know, you're know you a money manager. I mean, it's fantastic that we get to do it by working with high growth technology companies and founders that we love and help them in all these different ways. But you've got, you know, a lot of different constituents. And at the end of the day, you know, you're, you're a fiduciary to your LPs, right. And are responsible for their capital and returning that capital. Uh, and so, you know, we're stewards of tens of millions of dollars and the, um, you know a lot of the things that come with that uh you know require spending time in a lot of interesting areas that people don't necessarily appreciate because it's not as um not as visible from the outside uh for me having that that not been a part of my career at all historically at the LP level at least it's fascinating because it's really really interesting to like learn uh you know how learn how these kind of ecosystems work um i think one really interesting distinction one or two interesting distinctions um, from operating roles, particularly on the go-to-market side, really long feedback loops, right? So we're talking about funds that are eight, 10, 12 years long, right? So not only is it a big commitment, but it's not like when you're going out and trying to, you know, sell a new product to to a market and you're you're testing your pitch and you're testing your you know you go-to-market strategy, and you kind of figure out pretty quickly: is it work? Or is it not work? We'll try something different. You really don't know if you're good at uh, good at this for a very long, <laughs> a very long period of time. And so that's different. It's also um, it's also an individual sport. So at Frontline, we very much take a team mentality. Um, but at the end of the day, compared to you know running teams and celebrating wins, a uh, team and being a leader of you know uh, larger teams and stuff, it is much more a have an IC role, right? I mean, if you don't send an email or pick up a phone, like no one's going to do it for you. And so that's that's different. But but it's also kind of nice at this stage in my career, frankly, kind of switching to that um, because it's different. And I think the last thing I would say is, um, you know, if you're intellectually curious, you know, curious, uh, it's fantastic. It's the best job in the world. You get to like spend your time learning about all sorts of different areas, meeting all sorts of different types of people. Um, which just means that it's you know lots of diversity in terms of what you're doing and uh, nothing is nothing is ever dull, so.
1: Love it. Well, Brennan, this has been fascinating. So a couple of great takeaways, uh, more than a couple, a few good takeaways there for people thinking about making the uh, across, uh, uh, across the Atlantic. Um, and if they wanna find you, it's gonna be Brennan O'Donnell, like I'm guessing you've got a, a couple of followers on LinkedIn <laughs> there, uh, Frontline Ventures. So I'm sure you'll be- Yeah, uh, just Brennan down.
0: at frontline.vc is fine, so.
1: Uh, say that again, that email?
0: Oh, it's, just, it's Brennan at frontline.vc.
1: All right, look out. Here comes a flood to your inbox. Fantastic stuff. Thanks a lot, Brennan. Really appreciate uh, spending some time with you today and um, look out for those emails.
0: <laughs> Great, thanks, Matt.